Good morning. Let's say it again. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Amen. Would you please turn in your Bible to Matthew, the Gospel according to Matthew, first book in the New Testament, chapter 28. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. If you would join me in prayer one more time. Heavenly Father, we praise you for our risen Savior and King, our Lord Jesus Christ, the risen reigning Son of God. Help us see him in all his glory this morning with the eyes of faith by the power of your Spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. More than anything in the world, more than anything that we experience in this life, nothing has a sense of finality, of utter completion, than the experience of death. There's a sort of finality that we expect with death. You know, I know this as a pastor from caring for people, even from my own personal experience with loved ones, the two hardest moments, two of the hardest moments in the loss of a loved one, number one is when they close the casket or the coffin, when it's shut. And then second is when the casket or coffin is lowered into the ground. Those are two of the hardest moments, many of you know, and that's when the wailing and the weeping is the loudest. Because you see, it feels like the end. There's something in us that tells us this is the end. We're never going to see them or hear their voice again. And it's finished. And all we are left with are shattered dreams and devastation. That's how the disciples of Jesus felt like 2,000 years ago on Good Friday. They had given three years of their lives to follow this man named Jesus. They had staked everything upon him. They believed that he was the Messiah, that he was the one who is going to bring the kingdom of God with him. They believed his claims to be the son of God. They gave up everything to follow after him and they had developed this intimate closeness with him. And then all of a sudden, they saw him captured and then he was crucified, hanging naked and ashamed on a cross. And then he died. And his lifeless body was taken down from the cross and laid in a tomb and a stone was rolled at the entrance. This felt final. And now their dreams were shattered. Their hopes were crushed. Their futures were completely uncertain. They don't know what comes next. But something changed. Something changed. Something unexpected. You see, Jesus wasn't the only man at the time who claimed to be God's Messiah. 2,000 years ago, uh, there were a number of Jewish movements 
that claimed the Messiah had come. There were several men who claimed that they were God's anointed one, God's Christ, who had come to bring his kingdom, and they amassed a group of followers, multiple movements. And every one of these movements was soon snuffed out, and they were never heard from again as soon as their leader was eliminated. But not so with the early Christians those who followed Jesus. No, for these followers of Jesus, something changed because after what seemed like a crushing defeat, they began proclaiming a stunning victory. They went to the ends of the earth proclaiming the name of Jesus, even at the cost of their own lives. And to this day, this Jesus is proclaimed and he is worshipped. And we're all here this morning to celebrate and worship Him even as we gather every week to do the same thing. And the question is, why? What made the difference? What is it that brought about this life-altering, history-shaping, world-transforming change? Well, that's the question that the Gospel of Matthew is going to answer for us this morning. In Matthew 28, our Gospel writer, Matthew, is going to answer this question as he takes us through four scenes, four scenes from a very special Sunday morning 2,000 years ago. Scene one, the cataclysm. The cataclysm. Not catechism, cataclysm. That feels like a complex word, feels like a mouthful, so let me tell you what it is. A cataclysm is an earth-shattering event. It's an otherworldly event. Something spectacular, amazing, unbelievable, a large scale, something that's taken place on a large scale in the natural world. Or to use a phrase that some dictionaries use, that insurance companies use, a cataclysm we may simply say, is an act of God. An act of God. So let's read as Matthew introduces this cataclysmic event. If you would look in your Bibles with me, Matthew 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So these women... They had had a heartbreaking Friday. They had a very sorrowful Saturday. And now they're going to do what most people do when a loved one dies and is buried. They're going to the grave. I know many of you have done this. You know what it feels like. They're going to see the tomb. And the other Gospels will tell us they were carrying spices with us, again in hopes that they would anoint Jesus' dead body. They woke early, early in the morning on Sunday, and they go there. These women were there when he was laid in that tomb. What were they expecting to find? What do you think they were expecting to find? What would you expect to find? They were expecting to find a lifeless corpse. But something amazing has taken place. Something cataclysmic. Look in verse 2. 
And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Something awesome has happened. There's been an earthquake. There's been a descent from heaven to earth of this awesome angelic being. He looks like lightning. The stone has been rolled away. And he is sitting on this stone with his clothes blindingly white like snow. And you remember who else was there at this tomb? Uh, the Jews had stationed guards at the tomb. Because they had heard some rumors about something to be expected. And they wanted to prevent anything from happening. So they stationed these guards there. What happened to the guards? Verse 4. And for fear of him, that is seeing this angel, for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Something extraordinary has taken place. Something unbelievable has happened. And the women, as you can imagine, were absolutely stunned. They are shocked. They are awestruck. They are bewildered. And they're filled with a kind of fear. Wondering, what's going on? What has happened here? But then the angel speaks. Verse 5. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. Indeed, Jesus, these women knew, had been crucified. These are the same women who were at the cross weeping when he died. They saw him nailed to the cross. They saw him hanging and bleeding. They saw him breathe his last. They saw his body taken down. They were there and they saw his body laid in this tomb. And the stone rolled in front of it. But listen to what the angel says. He is not here, for he has risen as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Friends, Jesus rose. He rose from the dead. The cataclysm, the great act of God here, is not just the earthquake. It's not just this descent from heaven to earth of this amazing angelic being who looks like lightning. The cataclysm here is not just that the stone, this big stone was rolled away, but that the one who was laid in the grave, crucified and dead, has defeated death and has risen and bursting forth with life, has walked out of this tomb. You might be tempted to think that the angel rolled the stone away so that Jesus could get out. Oh, no, no, no. The stone was rolled away for the women to get in and to go and see that the body is not there anymore. And in this great act of God, where Jesus has arisen, 
God inaugurates his new creation. Not only has the king of heaven and earth, the king of the universe, come forth with new life. No, he has inaugurated. It's the dawn of the new creation. And all God's promises and plans are being fulfilled in him and through him. The new creation has come in the risen Christ. Let's not miss some of the highlights here. So you see this angel here in Matthew 28 at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Where else did you see an angel in, gospel, in Matthew's Gospel? Well, you saw an angel at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew with the Christmas story when the angel came to announce the birth of one who would be born to save his people from their sins, one who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. You see this earthquake here that has happened as Jesus rose from the dead where else do you see an earthquake in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, you see an earthquake just previously at the crucifixion, at the cross, when the maker of heaven and earth was hanging on the cross and bowed his head in death. The earth shook, and once again, the earth shakes, acknowledging its maker who is alive and all-powerful. And you look at the joke with the guards. These guards were stationed there and assigned to guard a dead man. But instead, the guards now have become like dead men. And the one whom they were supposed to guard is alive and well and has walked out. Notice verse 6. The angel says, He has risen just as he said. This was not supposed to be something unexpected, you see. Because again and again throughout this gospel... Jesus has predicted what will happen. Jesus has predicted and promised that he will be crucified and that he would be raised three days later. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Matthew 17, 22 and 23. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Matthew 26, verse 32, he tells them, after I am raised up, this is right before his passion, before he's captured, after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This was not supposed to be unexpected. And yet, it is unexpected for these women. Because you see, they didn't get it. They didn't fully grasp what Jesus had said. They didn't fully believe it. They hadn't fully understood God's promise. Isn't that so often the case with us? When times are hard, when it feels like your dreams have been shattered, when you're going through trials, more than you could have imagined. In our sorrow, in our hardship, in our darkness, it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that our Savior said He would rise and that He is alive. We begin to lose our grasp on the fact that the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, is risen, is alive is reigning over all, is the sovereign king over all the earth and over our lives. 
and he will fulfill his promises. You know, as one person put it, the resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of all promises past, but also the promise of things to come. And just like these women, dear friends, we are told not to be afraid, but instead to go and proclaim that He is risen. He is risen indeed. He's alive. And just like these women at the tomb, in their sorrow, they are given an invitation to see, to behold what the Lord has done. We are given this invitation. You see, again and again, the gospel writer, Matthew, places an emphasis on words of sight throughout this passage. Notice with me from verse 1. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. Verse 2. And behold, behold, an earthquake had happened. Verse 6, the angel says to them, Come, see where he was laid. Verse 7, behold, he is going before you to Galilee and there you will see him. See, I have told you. And in this repetition of these verbs of sight, Matthew is inviting us, dear friends, he's inviting you and I to come and see, to come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king, to see with our eyes of faith that Jesus is alive, that our Savior is risen. And as we see the truth with the eyes of faith, we meet the risen Savior and Lord Himself. Scene one was the cataclysm, and now we move to scene two, the Christ. Scene two, the Christ. Verse eight, so they departed quickly from the tomb, with fear and great joy, and ran to tell his disciples. The angel told them, go quickly and tell his disciples. And what do they do? They depart quickly, and they're running. These women don't care about, you know, propriety here. They're just overwhelmed with excitement. Their joy is overflowing. There's great joy and fear, this mix of emotions. And in their excitement, they're running to go tell the disciples. Can you imagine the overflow of emotions that they're feeling. You know, I, one of my favorite memories uh, with my kids was, uh, and this is with every one of them it's happened, is when we were reading the Chronicles of Narnia, and, uh, you know, we happened to catch it on video for one of the kids, but the Chronicles of Narnia is C.S. Lewis's marvelous uh, story, and in this uh, story there is a lion named Aslan, and the lion represents Christ, And in the second book, the lion actually dies. He he dies for the sake of rescuing uh, one of the kids. And these girls who were with him are so heartbroken at his death. And, you know, as I'm reading the story to my girls, I I see the faces. You know, they were around five and, you know, the long five-year-old face. And then there's this surprising turn of events. As they go to the body of the lion, suddenly it's not there. And then the children hear a voice. And, you know, I change my voices for the different characters when I'm reading. And so I make this voice. I still remember Petra saying, I know that voice. And I watch their eyes get as big as their eyes could possibly get. 
And there's this mix of glorious emotions. You felt these emotions. You know what this is like when you hear words that change your life. A mix of great joy and fear. All of a sudden, you know you're having your first child. Or someone you love asked you to marry you. Or you got that new job somewhere and you're going to move and it's going to change your whole life. This joy and excitement all mingled together. Well, these women are feeling far, far more than that. Their Lord, their Savior has risen. He's alive. The women who wept at the cross, unbearably wept, are now rejoicing exceedingly and running with excitement. They're running to meet the disciples and tell them, but they meet someone else. They encounter Someone else on the way. Verse 9. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. He's alive. What the angel told us, we now see before our eyes. What the angel said, we are now able to touch. And he's here. And we hear his voice once again, and Jesus, I mean, there's humor here, right? This is the first words of the risen Christ in the Gospel of Matthew. Greetings. That's, that's a casual greeting, by the way, okay? It's, it's, it's like saying, hello, hi there. And these women are just absolutely overwhelmed. It really is him. It's the Jesus who was crucified, and he's risen and standing before us. And how do they respond? Well, they grab hold of his feet. They grab hold of his feet and they worship. They hold on to his feet in such joy and love and affection. They hold on to his feet and they never want to let go of him. This is our Lord, the one whom we adore. They hold on to his feet for certainty and assurance. There's an assurance in the fact that they can touch him and hold him. This is not some vision that we're seeing here or something of our imagination. This is not some kind of ghost or spirit that's floating around without legs. No, this is Jesus. This, he has a real body. He has risen from the dead. He's alive. His body bursting forth with life. And they're holding on to him. And they hold on to his feet in worship and adoration, in worship and submission. Because he is worthy of this worship. This is Jesus. This is our Lord. This is our King. This is the Son of God. This is our Savior. This is the only one who is completely worthy of all our worship and adoration. And we must bow down and worship him just as these women did. He is Lord, and He is worthy of our worship. And so the gospel writer Matthew invites us, invites you and me, brothers and sisters, invites us, dear friends, to come to the risen Christ and to bow down in worship and adoration, for He is worthy. The King has conquered death. He died on the cross, paid for sins, once for all sacrifice, rose from the grave victorious, and now summons us to worship him. He is worthy of your love. He is worthy of your adoration. He is worthy of our worship and devotion. He is worthy of our submission. 
And then Jesus said to them, verse 10, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. So once again, this commission is repeated. Go and tell. He must be worshipped, and he must be proclaimed. They're told to go and bear witness to what they've seen, to the fact that Jesus is alive. And did you notice the language Jesus uses there? Go and tell my brothers. And you might miss this, but Jesus is actually using the words of Psalm 22 from the Old Testament. Once again, Jesus is showing how he fulfills all of God's promises and the predictions concerning him in the Old Testament. You see, if you read the chapter on Jesus' crucifixion, one chapter prior, if you read of Jesus' death, you'll see again and again this psalm being quoted, Psalm 22. And in the original context, Psalm 22 speaks of the suffering of the righteous one, of the righteous king. It speaks of his suffering and then speaks of his victory after suffering. And in verse 22 of Psalm 22, the righteous king who has faced suffering now says, I will proclaim your name to my brothers. Jesus is the king who has conquered and who brings with him God's kingdom. He is the victorious king who has risen and rules. And did you see what he called his disciples? My brothers. These are the guys who scattered these are the ones who failed. These are the guys who doubted and whose eyes were veiled. Do you see the tender-hearted compassion, the gentle love of the risen Savior? That he would speak concerning those who all abandoned him and called them his Brothers, my brothers, dear Christian, if you are in Christ, even when you fail, even when you stumble, even when you fall down, even when you struggle, even when you're so often wandering and led astray, our gracious compassionate, gentle Savior says to you, my brother, my sister. He calls us his brothers and sisters because, you see, he has bought us with his blood and made us his family. If you are in Christ, you are part of the family of God. And because we are his family, you have to recognize what has taken place in our lives, what he has done in us. If you are in Christ today, that means the same power by which the Son of God rose from the grave, that same power has worked in you to bring you to life, given you spiritual life. You have experienced a resurrection in your soul if you are in Christ. Through his great power and mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. His resurrection is our resurrection even now so that we can walk in newness of life and we can defeat our sin and we can live for His glory. You have the power of His resurrection working in you, dear brother or sister in Christ, to overcome sin. And the power of His resurrection not only overcomes sin in our lives now, but will one day overcome death. Because just like he was raised, his brothers and sisters will one day be raised glorious like him. No more death, no more sin, no more sorrow, no more tears, but joy forever in the family of the risen king. He is the Christ. He is our Christ. He is worthy of our worship and our submission. But not everyone responds to the resurrection in this way. No, the risen Christ does not bring about the same response in all. Some people respond differently. In fact, that's what we'll see in our next scene. So we've seen the cataclysm. We have met the Christ. And then third, we see the cover-up. The cover-up. Remember those guards at the tomb? The guys who became afraid and fell down like dead men? They were stationed there because the chief priests and those who conspired to kill Jesus had this fear. You see, Jesus had predicted again and again that he would rise. The disciples forgot that prediction, but the chief priests remembered it. And, and they wanted to prevent anything from happening that could give rise to a rumor or whatever. So they said, okay, let's station guards at the tomb and prevent anyone from stealing the body. And that's what they did. But now the body is not there. So what happens? Verse 11 and following. While they were going, that is while the women were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Can you imagine that? The first people to hear about the resurrection of Christ were these chief priests. The women are still going. They've not yet arrived to the disciples. But the guards have gone and told the chief priests. And how do these religious men respond? Verse 12 and following. When they had assembled with the elders and had taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. You know, sometimes we think that people don't believe because they just don't have enough evidence Oh, if we, we could only show them a little more evidence, we could show them all these different strands of data and evidence and proof, then they would believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Sometimes we think, oh, people would believe if only God would do a miracle. Sometimes maybe you've said that. God, I'll trust in you, the Lord. Jesus, I'll believe in you if you just do this miracle in my life. I just want to see you do this. Prove yourself. That's what we think, isn't it? Well, friends... The guards at the tomb had all the evidence. 
They had more evidence than anyone else. They experienced firsthand the greatest miracle in human history. And together with these chief priests, they continue in unbelief. What do they do? They cover it up. I mean, think about these religious men, the chief priests, as Jesus was hanging on the cross, they kept mocking him, and they said, let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. Let him come down from the cross, we will put our trust in him. Well, he did not come down from the cross, but now he has walked out of the grave, and they don't believe in him. Instead, they suppress the truth. They conspire to cover it up. The chief priests, the first in the history of the world to hear this good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ... For them, it's bad news because it threatens their power. It threatens all that they hold dear to themselves. It threatens their very identity. They can't be king of their lives anymore. Jesus must be king, and they don't like it. There's several levels of jokes here, right? There's humor here. Think about this. They tried to prevent the body of Jesus from being stolen, That's why they placed the guards at the tomb. But now, they make up the lie that the disciples stole the body. And as one pastor pointed out, the joke here is, they're trying to cover up the resurrection, but they spread the story of the empty tomb all the more. And you've got to think of the stupidity of the story that they make up. right? They they come up with this thing that the, the disciples came by night... While we were asleep and stole the body. Really? You were asleep? How did you know who came to steal the body? And it must have been a pretty significant alarm clock that you slept through because there was an earthquake, man. And an angel came from heaven and there was like lightning and stuff. And you slept through it all. And as you keep reading the story of Christian history, you just wonder, don't you? I mean, why would these disciples who stole the body, who know that Jesus is dead, if they knew that Jesus was dead, why would they go around proclaiming that he is alive and proclaiming his name at the cost of their own lives? Sometimes people will die, you see, for something if, you know, they've been brainwashed or deceived. Sometimes people will die for something if they really believe that they have something to gain. They will lie about it. Nobody usually dies for something you know to be untrue. So if the disciples themselves stole the body and they know that Jesus was dead, why would they go around proclaiming that he is alive? What did they have to gain except death? Yet they did proclaim that he is alive. Because it is the truth. Because it is a fact. And in the response of the gods and chief priests, we see what the heart of unbelief is, don't we? You see, it's not about needing more evidence. It's not about needing more proof. You don't need to prove to the unbeliever anything. The Bible says it. God himself has spoken. It's not about needing God to do a miracle. No, the greatest miracle imaginable, the greatest miracle in the history of the universe has just taken place. We have all the evidence we need. We have God's own word, God Almighty himself speaking to us in his word saying that his son rose again. We believe Jesus rose not because National Geographic couldn't find the body or the Discovery Channel found some new piece of evidence in in Palestine. 
No, we believe that Jesus rose because God says so in his own word in the Bible. And the reason that you don't believe it, you are here this morning, and and I know there are several here who don't believe in Jesus, who do not worship Jesus, for whom Jesus is not the Lord of your life, he's not the Lord of your heart, you have not submitted your life to him. The reason why you don't believe is not because you don't have evidence, it's not because you just need another miracle, it's because your heart is dead. Your heart is dead and hardened in unbelief. You do not believe because your heart is unwilling to believe. But I have good news for you. I have good news for you. Is that the Jesus who rose again with resurrection power has the power to take dead hearts and cause them to come alive and give you a heart that bleeds and bursts with life and bleeds for his glory. This Jesus who walked out of the tomb still makes dead men come to life today by his resurrection power. He died on the cross, was crucified, took upon himself the judgment that sinners deserve, paid the price of sin once for all. And he defeated sin and he defeated death and he rose from the grave victorious. And the risen Christ is among us today, even now able to bring your dead heart to life. Even now able to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that believes in the power of his resurrection. So I want to call you and appeal to you, if you're here today and Jesus is not your Lord, to come to him. You know, you might be a very religious person, you might fool us all. You might have grown up in a Christian home. You might come to church every week, even read your Bible every day. You might know the whole Bible. But you've never known the risen Christ. That might be you. That was the chief priest. These guys knew the Bible. But they didn't know Jesus. And if that's you this morning, I want to speak to you. And I want to say, hear the voice of the risen Son of God calling you to come to Him. Come to him and find life that you may be risen from the deadness of your sins. That he would bring you from darkness to light and give you eternal life and hope now and eternal life forever in his heavenly kingdom. You turn to him today. Yes, dear friends, the risen Christ has the power to raise the dead to life to raise people from spiritual death and give them eternal life. He has the power to take out dead hearts and give hearts that overflow with the power of his resurrection. He has the power to bring people from darkness to light. And in that power, by that power, he commands us, church. He commands you and me, brothers and sisters, To go and tell. To go and proclaim. To call people to worship him. To bring all nations under his glorious rule through the mission of the church. And that's our fourth scene in this marvelous chapter. We saw the cataclysm. We met the Christ We've seen the cover-up, and finally we see the commission. The commission. Verses 16 and following. 
Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Even now, there's this shaky element of uncertainty and hesitation. You know, the word uh, there used for doubted is a very rare word in the original language in the Gospel of Matthew. It appears in one other place. It was when Peter was uh, called by Jesus to walk on water, and then he began to hesitate, and he was uncertain, and he began to sink. And you can imagine what kind of uncertainty. This is not just a mental uncertainty of whether this is him, Jesus, really Jesus or not. They know that. It's more of an uncertainty of whether they can come to him. Because you see, these were the guys who abandoned him. These were the guys who said, I will follow you unto death. And then as he was dying, they all ran away. Well, here he is, alive, risen, reigning. What's he going to do to them? And there's this fear and trepidation. When, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. How does Jesus respond? Verse 18, and Jesus came. He came. It has the sense of approaching, drawing near to them. He comes to them to reassure them, to reassure their shaky hearts. And he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Even to the end of the age. And even here, Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament. He is fulfilling prophecy. You may not have realized it, but Matthew is here reminding us of what happens in Daniel chapter 7. In the book of Daniel, we see this prophecy, this prediction of this divine figure who approaches the throne of God himself and is given all dominion and authority over all the nations. Daniel 7 verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And right here in the resurrection of Christ as Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Dear friends, we see this passage coming true. All the nations belong to him. All kingdoms belong to him. He has all authority. The son of man is the son of God. The temple has been destroyed and raised again in three days. The king of the Jews who hung from a cross is now the king of the world who rules over it all. And all the nations are summoned to worship him. And so we must go. We must go because he is worthy. The church is called to go. We go because he has all authority. His mission will not fail. We go because he is completely worthy. The nations must worship him. He is the only one worthy of our worship. And so the Christian life, dear friend, is a call to come and worship. But it's not a call to come and comfortably sit. No, it's a command to count the cost and obediently go and tell. That's what we've been called to. 
And you see that theme throughout this passage. You see the women being told by the angels, by the angel, go and tell. And they obey. And as they're going, Jesus meets them. And what does he say to them? Go and tell. And what do they do? They obey. And then here we see the disciples meeting Jesus on this mountain. And Jesus tells them, go and make disciples. And what has happened? For 2,000 years, this command has continued to be obeyed. And that's why we're all here if you're in Christ this morning. He has been proclaimed to the ends of the earth, but the mission is not finished. We must keep on going. And now we as a church are called to go and tell that we should make disciples. We speak in boldness and with love. We speak with all authority because we have been commanded by the one who has all authority. We can call people to obedience and faith because we have been commanded by the Christ who commands all obedience. And here's the promise. The Jesus who commands and commissions us, the Jesus who sends us, the Jesus who is alive and defeated death is with us. And so we see this story come full circle from Christmas to Easter, to Resurrection Sunday, that at the beginning we were told, He is coming, Emmanuel, God with us. And here at the end, we ask the question at the beginning, what is it that sent Jesus' followers into all the world proclaiming the good news? It's that they knew this. They encountered the risen Lord. And he has said to them, he has said to us, I am with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our risen glorious Savior who is worthy of all worship, adoration, and praise. May we always live in light of his glorious resurrection and preparing for his glorious coming by going and telling this good news. In Jesus' name, amen.